they want to make daylight savings time permanent and do away with standard time. Frankly, I think it's kind of insane. We actually went over this in the 1970s. They actually experimented and tried this, and everyone ended up hating it. I feel like we should try it again. Hello, and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. President Trump's approval rating was the steadiest of any president since pollsters started regularly tracking presidential approval in the 1940s. So far, President Biden's approval has been even steadier and significantly higher. So we're going to talk about why that is and also what might affect Biden's approval rating. In particular, is Biden likely to benefit from the American Rescue Plan, which he signed into law last week and is broadly popular? Also, last week, Biden urged states to open vaccine eligibility to all adults by May 1st, and some states appear to be on an even faster timeline. The country is quickly approaching a period where the challenge will go from securing enough vaccines to ensuring that everyone who is eligible actually gets vaccinated. We'll look at the latest polling about vaccine hesitancy and access. And we're going to check in on the ongoing scandal in New York, where politicians in the state legislature and congressional delegation have increasingly called on Governor Cuomo to resign over sexual harassment allegations. Here with me to discuss it all is politics editor Sarah Frostenson. Hello, Sarah. Hey, Galen. Also here with us is politics reporter Alex Samuels. Hey, Alex. Hey, Galen. And elections analyst Jeffrey Skelly. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Galen. So let's begin by talking about presidential approval. And we're going to ask one of our favorite questions, which is good use of polling or bad use of polling. And today's example is simply presidential approval polling. Is it a good use of polling, right? So as I mentioned, throughout a chaotic presidency, Donald Trump had the steadiest approval rating of any president as far back as our records go. And so far, Biden's approval rating is even steadier. Jeffrey, you wrote a little bit about this this week. Where do you come down? Is presidential approval polling useful if it's not really going to change all that much? My attitude was, yes, it's still valuable. It still tells us what the American public thinks about the president. And that is important because even if it seems President Trump's approval was extremely steady, it still had some ups and downs. And we could still pinpoint some of those downs and ups to particular events or scandals. So I think it's adjust our expectations for how big of a surge you might see in a president's approval or how much of a downtick because obviously attitudes are a lot more hardened now because things are so partisan. But at the end of the day, you can still see some movement and you can still see how that sort of affects public opinion about the president. Okay, Sarah and Alex, how do you feel about this? I mean, we watched President Trump's approval rating throughout all four years and we would see like movements of two to three points Is that a good use of presidential approval polling if really there's a very minor fluctuation and whatever fluctuation there was didn't even seem long term? I think Jeff started to answer this in the sense that gone are the days of the 10 point swings in response to crises. That isn't what we saw in the data. The biggest drop in Trump's approval was after the insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th. And still, that was only a five point drop. So again, biggest drop it was still only five points. That said, though, it's still too early in the cycle right now to look at generic ballot polling to get a sense of how Americans are leaning in the race for Congress. So the approval rating for a president is kind of our best use of polling to understand where the electorate is. So I'd say great use of polling. We need more of it. (laughs) 
So I would say it's useful in some ways, but one thing that Gallup measured last year that I found interesting was looking at how approval ratings impact whether a presidential incumbent wins re-election. So essentially what they found was that all incumbents with an approval rating above 50% in their final pre-election survey won re-election. And the two presidential incumbents with approval ratings below 40, which was Jimmy Carter and George H.W., lost badly. So using this data, they predicted that Trump's re-election chances last year were slim, and they were right in saying that he likely was not going to win re-election because his approval ratings pre-election 2020 were hovering right around 43%. So that was a very long-winded way of saying that I think these approval ratings are probably most useful right before an incumbent is up for re-election or for looking at 2022 versus 2024. So one question I have here, given that the national polls were off by four points in 2020, is do we need to look at these approval ratings with a grain of salt? Because, for example, as you mentioned, Trump was in the low 40s, much of his presidency in terms of approval rating. Nationally, he got about 47 percent of the vote which is higher than the number of Americans who approved of the job he was doing. So should we take that to mean that there are some people who don't approve of the job that President Trump was doing, but voted for him regardless? And likewise, right now, we see Joe Biden with about a 54% approval rating. And in this case, should we think like, okay, well, that's what the polls are capturing, but maybe there's actually less support because we know the polls were off last November. Well, historically, polling error has been sort of hard to predict in terms of direction. So just because there was a four-point error in 2020 doesn't mean that there will be one in, say, 2022 or 2024 when we actually have another presidential election. So I would be cautious about that. But I do think some of the concerns that we saw from polling in 2020 in terms of non-response bias, we missed some Trump supporters clearly in the polls to some extent, what was responsible for that. I do think that that concern still lingers for something like presidential approval because you can see how that voter sentiment and the partisanship can tie in and relate strongly to an election. I mean, thinking about the 2020 presidential election, most voters who approved of Donald Trump voted for him for re-election and most who disapproved voted against him, very high rates there. So I do have concerns for some of the same reasons with election polling when it comes to approval polling too. We started off by saying, okay, approval ratings are still useful, but that we have to change our expectations. So what should we change our expectations to and do the same lessons from Trump's presidency apply to the Biden presidency? So like what kind of a shift in approval ratings should we consider to be significant enough that it could shape electoral outcomes or that an incumbent should be worried about their performance with the public? Right. So Sarah mentioned that the biggest drop in Trump's approval rating was after the assault on Capitol Hill on January 6th, and his approval fell about five points. If you went back into our approval tracking data for Trump, you can only find a couple other instances where his approval rating fell by even half that in such a short amount of time, which was about nine days. For example, the the firing of James Comey back in 2017, or, or right after Trump signed an executive order to banned travel from predominantly Muslim countries. Also, way back in 2017, uh, his approval fell about 
three points in both of those cases in a very short time. But for example, you can also see about a three-point drop over a month after the killing of George Floyd and Trump's response to that, including things like the Lafayette Square incident where they cleared of protesters that got a negative response. So I think for me, it's like, well, we're not going to see big 10-point swings anymore. But maybe a three-point swing here over a couple weeks or a month could be symbolic of an actual real change in American attitudes towards something. Now, you have to be careful, though, because if you're just looking at one poll and you see a shift, you don't want to make too much of that because that's not a very big change when it comes to just one poll. But if you have a fair amount of polling to work with, which hopefully we do when it comes to approval tracking, we can say something has changed over a couple weeks. I think one thing I'm keeping an eye on now is we also have a tracker here at 538 that looks at how Biden is handling the response to the coronavirus. And what I thought was interesting is his overall approval numbers there among both Democrats, Republicans and independents is 61 percent. So that's, you know, seven points higher than his current overall presidential approval rating. That suggests to me two things. A, partisanship is a a factor in the overall approval. Like just because I think Biden's doing well in terms of how he's responding to the coronavirus doesn't mean I think he's doing well overall. But it also suggests that maybe that there is more of a ceiling for him and potential, you know, as we're going to discuss here with the coronavirus stimulus funding, that that could help his numbers. You might see a swing to that. I happen to think that something we saw time and time again with Trump was more so um, shifts in his numbers in response to negative things. I'm not sure that the reversal is often there in response to positive things that presidents or politicians do. I think we're more of a uh, scandal-based polling society. But I think it's interesting that the difference is there. And I think, again, to return to Alex's big point about as long as Biden can stay north of 50%, That is in itself a strong indicator in the same way that Trump couldn't crack 50 percent before the election suggested that, you know, there was a real possibility he could lose. And one thing you said that was interesting just now, Sarah, was just how approval for the American Rescue Plan is a lot higher than Biden's overall approval rating. And one question that I have, and this is just a hypothetical, is Will Republicans who approve of the American Rescue Plan but maybe don't approve of Biden overall, like what does that mean electorally in 2022 and 2024? Are they going to reward Democrats for this and maybe help Democrats keep the House, which we know history is not on their side in that? Or does it mean these people who approve of the American Rescue Plan, maybe they're Republicans but not necessarily the biggest Biden fans, are they just going to keep voting Republican? So you mentioned that for presidential approval, in terms of winning re-election, above 50% is the golden number. Is that also true for midterm elections? Like if the president's approval rating is above 50%, then their party in the House will perform well and in the Senate will perform well, or do they need to be doing better? Historically, it needs to be higher than 50%. Usually the president's in even in remotely recent times, who have seen their party gain a little bit in the House, for instance, or have pretty marginal losses, uh, had approval ratings north of 60%. So in 1998, Bill Clinton's approval rating was a bit above 60%. Democrats gained a handful of seats in the House. Remember, the House is sort of the easiest tool for this because it's an actual national election, unlike the Senate, where about a third of the seats are up every two years. And George W. Bush, 
Republicans also gained a handful of seats in 2002 during his first midterm because his approval was still very high in the aftermath of 9-11 and the beginning of the invasion of Iraq or the ramping up in that direction. So historically, I think Biden's approval would have to be in a stronger place than it is now for Democrats to have much hope of minimizing or even gaining a few seats in the 2022 midterms. However, with that said, is that still true now, given what we know about how partisan approval rating is in terms of, you know, you'll have a poll that says 10 percent of Republicans approve of Joe Biden, but 90 percent of Democrats do. uh, And maybe it sort of matters where the independents fall. But maybe you only need to be at 55 percent today because 55 is the new 60. 55 is the new 60. (laughs) Have you seen Hollywood lately? (laughs) No, it's got to go the other direction. (laughs) I mean, I think it might be the new 70, actually. (laughs) It's I mean, just my main point is maybe we've narrowed the bands that things operate within. Maybe the ceiling is lower and the floor is higher. And if things are kind of like 2018 and 2020 with such high turnout, people are very engaged. Maybe you don't need to be at 62% or something for Democrats to avoid losses. But obviously that remains to be seen. And it's going to be a really interesting debate to have over the next year and change. Yeah. The one thing I would add to that is the famous stat, like, oh, the president's party always does so poorly in the midterms. But the standard has been that they have to gain seats in both the House and the Senate. That's a tall order. Because, like, think back to 2018 in the sense that, yes, it was a blue wave in the House, but Republicans gained in the Senate. They picked up seats. So I wonder, too, if the way in which we've historically measured it, that the president's party must gain in both chambers, kind of misses like the Clinton success or even Herbert Walker Bush, you know, Bush the elder. He only lost eight seats, one seat in the Senate, hardly what you would describe as shellacking in the same way that you would have talked about the blue wave in 2018. So part of it, you know, when we try to pinpoint the exact number for Biden, I kind of wonder to what extent to, and I realize when we look at some of the institutions like like the Senate, the House, the Electoral College, they often have a Republican bias, which, you know, then is perhaps one reason why the Republicans picked up two seats in the 2018 midterms in the Senate. But maybe his numbers don't have to be north of 55 for Democrats to still retain control of one chamber or not to have like 10 seats go away or something. And when we have this discussion of Biden's approval ratings and how that will impact 2022, I kind of wonder, like, is part of this just out of Biden's hands completely because we still don't know what the 2022 congressional districts will look like? And until the states are finished redrawing their maps, we won't really have a clear sense of that. And at the state level, Republicans have a big hand or probably a bigger hand than Democrats do in deciding what these maps will look like. So even if Biden's approval rating is 60% ahead of 22. If the districts are redrawn in a way where Republicans can retain power, is there anything that Biden can do with like a super high approval rating that would um, discount that? That's definitely a variable that is really hard to project at this point. How are the new maps going to affect things? But I do think that talking about the American Rescue Plan, the COVID-19 stimulus here, I think what the Democrats are banking on, what Biden and his administration are banking on, is that the economy is going to get to roaring by later this year and into 2022, and that is going to help boost his approval rating, help boost Democratic support across the country. And so that's sort of, I think, the thing that they can do and can hope for. We'll see, though, because we've seen in the last couple of presidencies uh, with Barack Obama and Donald Trump that 
economic attitudes, economic sentiment about how things are going has become much more separated from overall approval and disapproval of the president. So the moment that Joe Biden basically looked like he was going to win the presidency, you had polls that showed Republican economic sentiment, how things are going well or poorly, immediately drop, whereas Democrats started to tick upward. And so a really great economy doesn't mean that suddenly a ton of Republicans are going to come over to Biden's side or something. So it's really comes down to margins. But I think that's what they're hoping they can do to help themselves out. So it sounds like we're talking about things that Biden can control and things that Biden can't control. And he can't control the degree of partisanship or polarization. Maybe he can to some extent through rhetoric. He doesn't maybe play the same base politics that Trump did. And we see that, of course, his approval rating is a little bit higher. As you mentioned, they're baking on this American rescue plan in part to try to boost his numbers and maybe run on the economy in 2020. So the approval rating nationally for the American Rescue Plan is somewhere in the 70 to 75 percent range. Do we expect that Democrats can convert that into higher approval ratings than 54 percent for Biden? Where's the difference between approving of policy and approving of an actual party or an actual president? How do you try to make those two connected if you're Democrats? One thing I've seen coming out now, the American Rescue Plan, like this is how Democrats win back the working class. It's going to jumpstart the economy. But we kind of saw pretty definitively in 2020 that, yes, Biden did well in the primary in those counties, but they went for Trump ultimately in the general. And it it seems as if, you know, if Scranton Joe can't identify with these voters, will this economic policy do that? I'm kind of of two minds. Like one reason why I think McCain really struggled in 2008 was because the economy was so bad. Granted, the Great Recession has a lot of different elements than what we're currently going through today, but there are some parallels. And in the sense that by July 4th, that's what Biden's now promised, right? Like, you know, you can have a barbecue, you'll be outside with your neighbors. If that trajectory lines up, if people are back in the workforce, if, you know, the unemployment numbers are down, I wonder if, as we go back to quote-unquote normal, he is rewarded electorally for that, depending that there aren't any other scandals that break. I could kind of see the argument for that. I mean, it certainly seems to be the political bet they're making and seems like a smart one. I agree with everything that's been said here. And I getting back to sort of the margins thing, you know, Pew Research did polling on, on approval for the, the rescue plan. They broke down Republican approval into high, medium, and low-income Republicans. And it was interesting because high-income Republicans, very few approved of the plan, and a few more approved in the medium-income level, but then a majority, actually, of low-income Republicans approved of the plan. So thinking about how Democrats and Biden try to gin up more support ahead of the 2022 midterms, it's the economy improves and that they get some credit for that and that they win over a few people who currently might be inclined to disapprove of them or have no opinion or mixed opinions, maybe. So it may be moving someone from a somewhat disapproved to a somewhat approved position on Biden. And there are people in the electorate who could move in that way. It's not so hardened, but it's just that there are a ton of people who are going to strongly approve or strongly disapprove no matter what happens. Yeah. And a lot of times we think of the midterm backlash happening because 
the out party, the opposition party, is so energized because they really don't like what the incumbent is doing. And so part of being successful as an incumbent in the midterms is not just keeping your approval rating up and doing popular things. It's also keeping your disapproval rating down and making sure that the opposition doesn't have a ton of energy to like show up to the polls in much higher numbers than your own voters. And so we'll see whether or not doing popular things can keep his disapproval rating down in addition to whether or not it'll boost his approval rating. So we're dealing with two dynamics here. One is what we've mentioned, which is partisan polarization, restricting the degree to which approval can move in the era that we're currently in. The other thing here is there's this policy debate going on on one hand, and then there's a cultural debate going on on the other hand, right? Republicans are really focused on cancel culture and basically that Democrats are trying to change our society really quickly in dramatic ways, not just Democrats, but also liberals and activists and things like that. Do we know when it comes to those kinds of questions about economic policy, infrastructure, stimulus spending, et cetera, and culture wars, which is more salient for voters? I think that it's very possible that Republicans centering these issues like Dr. Seuss, Potato Head, et cetera, are very accurately reading their base. A survey last month from um, the GOP pollster Echelon Insights found that the top concerns among Republican voters were mainly cultural ones. The ones at the top were illegal immigration, a lack of support for the police, high taxes, and, quote, liberal bias in mainstream media. Those all did well. So if those are the things that the Republican base is interested in, would it not make sense for Republican electeds to kind of push those issues? I think that's a really good point and something to keep an eye on. I think we've seen the limitations of the Carville adage that it's the economy stupid, right? Like, don't kid ourselves that if the economy bounces back now, that's good for Biden. Like, he needs that to happen. If, you know, if we've spent all this money and that doesn't happen, that's probably a huge electoral nightmare. But I think what Alex is hitting on in particular about the identity that is now so infused in our politics and, you know, Republicans wanting to leverage this idea of cancel culture that clearly resonates with the base. Poll after poll shows that many Americans don't necessarily know what cancel culture is, but a majority of Republicans do, and particularly young Republicans are really concerned about it. So that will be a dynamic to watch for. However, though, that was Trump's 2020 playbook, and we saw the limitations of that. I think ultimately... You want a strong identity narrative as a political party, but you have to have some policy at the end of the day that delivers something for your base. And I think had Trump's handling of the coronavirus been a little bit better, we might be looking at a second term for him. Historically, Americans have said things that have to do with the economy are sort of the most important problem, at least oftentimes when we haven't been at war or something. The economy tends to be the most important issue. Now, it can vary a lot. Maybe 20% of people say it's the most important problem or, or challenge or the thing that they're most worried about. Or maybe it's 50% when we're in the middle of like an economic crisis or something. But at the end of the day, the economy is still something that people care a lot about. And I think it's also the zone where if you're Democrats, this is the thing you want to focus on if it's improving and you're hoping it's going to improve. Whereas for Republicans, they see how popular that the rescue plan is. So it doesn't benefit them to focus on it all that much. They know that some people are going to be worried about the price tag because there are a lot of voters out there who will be like, wow, that's a lot of money and I'm worried about balancing the budget. But maybe it's 
better for them or, you know, has more potential use for Republicans to talk about things like cancel culture and various cultural and identity things. Because if the economy does start to do better and the Democrats can talk about the rescue plan as being the reason for that, it's not a great talking point for the GOP to talk about the rescue plan. So they should focus on something else. Right. The other message that we've heard from Republicans is that Well, the economy was already improving anyway, and there was going to be a boom because of the underlying conditions of pent-up demand, a lot of savings because people weren't actually spending for an entire year and so on, which like may well be true, but it's hard to get that message across that like you have to kind of admit already that the economy is doing well in order to then go and make your argument that you shouldn't credit Democrats. So that may be like more of a difficult roundabout way. Of course, if we do see negative complications like inflation and things like that, I am sure Republicans will be talking about the economy and not cultural issues quite as much, but we're going to have to wait and see how this all shakes out. Which means that, as you all said, you think that approval ratings are still a good use of polling, which means that we will continue tracking them as we see where the economy heads, where the coronavirus heads, and also where some of these cultural debates head. Obviously, there are more and more immigrants at the southern border, which Republicans have been talking about plenty, but is also an actual crisis for the Biden administration. We'll see how that plays out. But let's move on and talk about the latest in vaccine hesitancy polling. But first, today's podcast is brought to you by Shopify. Ready to make the smartest choice for your business? Say hello to Shopify, the global commerce platform that makes selling a breeze. Whether you're starting your online shop, opening your first physical store, or hitting a million orders, Shopify is your growth partner. Sell everywhere with Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system. Turn browsers into buyers with Shopify's best converting checkout, 36% better than other platforms. Effortlessly sell more with Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Did you know Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and supports global brands like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. Join millions of successful entrepreneurs across 175 countries backed by Shopify's extensive support and help resources. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Start your success story today. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash 538. That's the numbers, not the letters. Shopify.com slash 538. So far, the story of the coronavirus vaccine has been one of high demand and limited supply. But as more and more doses become available and more Americans become eligible, the next challenge facing the government will be ensuring that enough Americans are vaccinated to stem the spread of the virus. And that means addressing any hesitancy about the vaccine and also access issues. The polling on which has evolved quite a bit over the past years since the pandemic first hit. So, I want to just start off with taking a look at the polling landscape overall. How willing are Americans to be vaccinated at this point? They want it. At least 70% in a Pew poll either intends to get a vaccine or has already gotten it. And that is a big uptick from November. That was the last time Pew had surveyed it. And what caught a lot of attention in particular, and Alex did a great piece on this 
speak to it more, but it's the uptick among Black Americans in particular who said that they were willing to get the vaccine. The one thing I thought that was kind of undercovered in that Pew story and hasn't really sunk into how we process this writ large is like some of these polls around the vaccine rollout were being done in November before it was clear who had won the presidency the vaccines weren't actually here yet. There were all these like mixed reports on how effective are they. And, you know, one thing was Democrats initially last year were very hesitant to get the vaccine. But now that's changed and the reverse is true. And now it's Republicans who are more nervous and unwilling to get the vaccine. So I think something to keep in mind is that like everything else, vaccination is political Overall, though, the majority of Americans do want to get vaccinated and there isn't really this hesitancy borne out in the data. And I think the NPR, PBS, Marist poll from last week essentially said that the groups that were most likely to just flat out refuse the vaccine were Trump voters, Republicans, and white evangelicals. So as you said, it just goes back to how this is being politicized again. But I think that new poll kind of goes with earlier data suggesting part of what we already knew, which was that there's a difference between expressed hesitancy with Black and Latino communities and an expressed refusal among the Trump and GOP base. One question that I have just going forward is the degree to which that refusal is just expressive responding versus whether it's actually going to play out and carry over into people's behavior if the vaccine becomes widely available just here in the next few months. At this point, too, the other thing is it seems to be more access is the underlying reason. The Times earlier here in March had done an analysis of the vaccination rate among Black, Hispanic, and white people. And what they found, unsurprisingly, is that Black people as a share of the population and Hispanic people as a share of the population have not been able to be vaccinated at the same rate as white Americans. And so again, I think that goes back to what Alex was saying, that it's less a hesitancy issue and more an access issue. Yeah, it seems somewhat complicated in that in some cases it's both. In other cases, It's not. So in that recent Marist College polling that you mentioned, about a quarter of both Black and white Americans said they had already been vaccinated, which I found interesting because we have seen reports that Black Americans have not been vaccinated at the same rate as white Americans. And the data actually showed that really where we see a lag in who's getting vaccinated is amongst Latino Americans. And I'll just say also... There's a lot of data that disagrees here. We'll see very different polling numbers from one poll to the next on who has been vaccinated, how much hesitancy there is, et cetera. So how should we weed through some of this data, especially where we see discrepancies? Well, I think you want to look at how the question was asked. Sometimes there are a couple responses that a person can give, or there are three options that the pollster presents to them, and that can affect the percentage of people who say that they want to get a vaccine. Maybe there's some middle response. People like to choose the middle response in polls because if it expresses uncertainty or hesitancy, if you think about a poll asking about approval, if one of the options includes neither approve or disapprove, you're going to get like 10% of people who say that because they're kind of not sure and you're not really pushing them. So they're going to choose that. So I think looking at how the poll is set up, uh, what the nature of the question is, is important for understanding some of those differences. And also just understanding that the wording of the question itself can matter. We know from past polling and experiments that just how you word something can affect responses. So I think if you're seeing you know 60% in one poll and 72% in another poll, that's indicating broad support or broad interest in getting the vaccine and broad intention of getting the vaccine. But 
in terms of figuring out what the hard number is in terms of the number of people who are going to actually get the vaccine without a little more prodding, that's harder to know, at least if you're trying to get a precise number. One thing I do want to flag, though, is so the New York Times analysis that I'm referencing that was done in early March, that was actually looking at like CDC vaccination rate data. And of course, that's lagging. But in terms of evaluating that versus like a poll, I would look at what is the CDC actually recording? Granted, you know, how each state collects race and ethnicity data varies from case to case. And it makes it hard then to understand what the national picture looks like, which I think could explain some of that discrepancy. The other thing for Hispanic voters in particular is right now, most states are only doing Americans 50 and older. Hispanics in the U.S. skew much younger. So I think there are still access issues. You're seeing that with Black Americans as well. But some of it is age. But actually, it was playing out in D.C. in this really interesting way in the way that some of the wards that were considered eligible skewed very white, but they were also very old. That didn't mean that there were ways in which people were gaming the ward that Anacostia is located in that is predominantly Black in the district and going in there and not being from that area. Both things were happening, which I think also then complicates the picture, that some of it is age demographics, some of it is unequal access to the vaccine itself. Yeah, so... As you mentioned, the story is really complicated and some of this data is conflicting. But what we do see steadily across all of the polling is that some of the highest hesitancy rates are amongst Republicans. Why is that and what can be done to try to encourage people to get vaccinated? Many Trump supporters have been skeptical of coronavirus health guidelines since the get-go, especially when it came to restrictions on businesses and mask mandates. So I'm just wondering like how surprising it is that this is one of the groups that says they don't want to get the vaccine. I know Dr. Fauci had said pretty recently that it would be great if Trump went out and told his supporters, hey, the vaccine is available. I got the vaccine and it's helpful. But Trump so far doesn't seem willing to do that. You know, he got the vaccine, I believe, Privately, uh, no cameras, which was obviously different than the approach that I think Biden and Harris took in getting their vaccines. So I don't know if President Trump coming out and telling his supporters, hey, there are safety concerns with getting the vaccine. Maybe it's smarter to go out and get it, et cetera. I don't know if that would help assuage any of the concerns that Republicans have in getting it. I think that's a really smart point because you're right. Trump did it privately, but I think Pence, you know, was the one who did it publicly, right, and had that televised. But there isn't the same messaging among, like, the GOP elite and political leaders of, hey, I'm getting the vaccination. It's important. It matters. It's what helps us get back to normal. And you would think that kind of messaging would go a long way in dispelling some of the fears. Because I remember, you know, in the lead up to November, when it was still like the vaccines were being developed, And I remember Harris saying, like, I don't know if I would trust the vaccine. And I was like, no, like that will be so bad because then you'll have Democrats not trusting the vaccine as much. And sure enough, at that point, because it was the Trump administration, because they hadn't handled the coronavirus particularly well, there was a lack of trust among Democrats that has since corrected. And now to Alex's point, right, it's primarily Republicans and you don't see someone stepping in to that leadership role to say, hey, it's important that you get vaccinated. Yeah. And to put some numbers to this. So as you mentioned, Sarah, 30 percent of Americans overall say they wouldn't get the vaccine. That number jumps to 41 percent 
amongst Republicans. So there is a significant hesitancy there. I'm also curious about access. What do we know about the ecosystem in which this opinion exists? So when we looked at access, particularly among Black Americans, essentially what we found was that vaccine hubs were concentrated in areas that were predominantly whiter and predominantly wealthier. So it was harder for Black people to get a vaccine. Um, Another thing we looked at is the access to internet. Since signing up for a vaccine is predominantly online, how many people have access to a phone or a computer or an internet where they could sign up to do this by themselves rather than ask a friend or family to help them? So I know those are two big parts of it. And then we also looked at an instance in California where they had opened the vaccine to people of color, predominantly in one section of the state. But I think white people were coming in just stealing the vaccine slots as well. So I think there are a couple problems with access that need to be addressed, whether that be making the vaccine more accessible in communities of color and making sure people of color are actually getting the vaccine. But then on top of that, addressing things like misinformation in Black and Latino communities and making sure people who aren't meant to get these vaccine slots aren't just coming in and taking what's left of the supply. And one thing I would add to that we would be remiss not to mention, our colleagues, the COVID-19 podcast, did a really great segment talking about how West Virginia and Governor Jim Justice has really revolutionized vaccine distribution there. They had a very much like use it or lose it kind of policy. And West Virginia is a very homogeneous, small state and can do certain things that a state like Texas or California can't pull off in the same way. I think West Virginia has showed that as a more rural state, there are still pathways in which you can push vaccination and also a very Trump-leaning state. So there's that as well. I think what Sarah was saying is very important in terms of thinking about how elites can queue up public opinion. They can lead it in certain directions. And so if you were to see the former President Trump or just a large number of Republican members of Congress really pushing the vaccine that could encourage more Republican acceptance and desire to get the vaccine. I I know that Mitch McConnell has put out a statement talking about his support for it, having had a polio vaccine as a child and how important that had been. So you're going to hear some Republicans pushing for it, but I don't think you're hearing quite the chorus that you'd like to hear and that I think would encourage Republicans to get the vaccine, those who are uncertain about getting it at least. Is it part of it an underlying distrust of the federal government or the government making things mandatory or encouraging people to do things one way or another, is that underlying it or is it just really like a partisan preference that could change? I think it's a mix of those two things in the sense that we know that many conservatives are more skeptical of the government and of mandates. And in some cases that can get into questions about religion. We were talking about evangelicals earlier, that their support for the vaccine is lower But at the same time, I do think that if Trump were president right now, you would see more Republicans being receptive to getting a vaccine because of that partisan switch being flicked in terms of who's in power, and you'd have more Democrats being hesitant about it. And I think even Biden's press secretary even said last week that a Democratic administration with a Democratic president is probably not the most effective messenger to communicate with these hardcore Trump supporters. So going off of Jeff's point, I do think the partisan part of it is probably why we're seeing some hesitancy. 
I think that's spot on. But then I think I already said Jim Justice, but then like DeSantis, and it was controversial because it's like, hey, anyone come to Florida to get the vaccine. But again, I think he pushed vaccination, at least in a way in which we're going to do it on our terms. And again, Republican elite or leader kind of pushing that message. There just doesn't seem to be many that are falling into the DeSantis or justice camp in terms of vocally pushing for vaccination in the same way that Democrats are. All right. Well, we will keep an eye on this as May approaches and more and more people are eligible. Hopefully this is like a hesitancy thing more than a hard no, but we will see how politicians try to encourage people to get vaccinated. And as you mentioned earlier, Sarah, Podcast 19 has covered this, and they're also going to have an episode up later this week on the strategies that people are using to convince those within their community to get vaccinated. So go check that out. Before we wrap, I do want to check in on the scandals in New York and calls for Cuomo's resignation. But first... Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. Last Friday, the calls for New York Governor Cuomo's resignation over sexual harassment allegations reached a fever pitch. So more than a dozen members of the state's Democratic House delegation called on Cuomo to resign and then included House Judiciary Committee Chair Gerald Nadler, one of the highest ranking Democrats in the House. It also included Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. By the end of the day on Friday, both New York senators, Chuck Schumer, who is, of course, the Senate Majority Leader, and Kirsten Gillibrand also called on Cuomo to resign. Cuomo denied the harassment claims and reiterated Friday that he would not resign, describing the calls for him to do so as part of cancel culture. Last week, when we talked about how the Democratic Party was responding to these harassment allegations, we noted that a lot of national Democrats had stayed out of this and questioned whether or not that was part of a reaction to what happened with Al Franken and national Democrats not wanting to, as forcibly as they had in the past, push out a somewhat popular Democrat. So what changed over the past week that now all of these national Democrats are coming out and asking Cuomo to resign? I mean, I think in part it's that there have been further allegations made against Cuomo. And as we've seen in some other cases in the past, when you get more and more evidence sort of building or there's a drip, drip, drip to this sort of thing, that can encourage greater support for calling for a resignation or calling for someone to step down. So I think that's clearly part of it. So Democratic leaders, members of Congress from New York or, or other officials there are feeling like, well, there's there's a lot here and maybe it'd be easier politically for our party and for our agenda. Remember, Democrats have full control of things in New York and there are a lot of things they probably want to do if Cuomo left because then we could get back to governing or get rid of this sore spot that conflicts with our messaging on 
things like sexual harassment and abuse. Yeah. And to be clear, I don't think Cuomo has made a ton of friends in his governorship here. He took away a lot of the state legislature's responsibilities here in the pandemic. And he addressed that on Friday. There is an element of opportunism in the sense that New York is controlled by Democrats and a lot of advancement in the party requires someone retiring or stepping down. That said, though, I mean, the response within both national Democrats, the state legislature has been overwhelming in terms of calling for his resignation. It is notable, though, some of the holdouts like Nancy Pelosi has not said anything, wants to see the investigation Biden said the same over the weekend. Hakeem Jeffries, who's like number two or three in the House, has also stepped away from actually calling for Cuomo to be resigned. So the few friends he does have are very influential and powerful. The question is, you know, why does he think that the results of the investigation are going to exonerate him? So is it just that that doesn't have a real sense of timeline and it will take a while and then maybe he gets to like go quietly at the end of his term. That I don't really understand right now. And the other thing I should mention here is we talked a lot about the polling last week when we were discussing this scandal and noted that the majority of New Yorkers did not want Cuomo to resign. We didn't get any new polling all of last week. And you might have thought, okay, there is this new allegation where an unnamed aide said that Cuomo groped her in the governor's mansion. And then you also had this outpouring of Democrats, national Democrats, calling on Cuomo to resign. We just got polling today, the first new polling since we discussed it last week. And on the resignation question in the Siena College poll, 35% of New Yorkers thought he should leave office, 50% said he should not, and 15% are undecided. So after all of that, we haven't really seen actually very much change amongst how voters in New York are viewing this. Why? Well, that poll was conducted early to like mid-March, so it doesn't fully include the groping allegation that Galen, you mentioned earlier, and I don't think it also includes the recent flood of calls from him to resign. So if a poll comes out, after this, that takes all of that into account. I just don't know how his numbers will change. Yeah, actually, I was inclined to bring the point up that this could be a fast-moving story where public opinion could shift markedly depending on what comes out. And that this poll, a lot of its the time span for it was March 8th to 12th. A lot of that doesn't include the responses we saw over the weekend and at the very end of last week. So Would it still be 50% don't resign today? I'm not sure. I suspect that that number would go down and the number of people supporting resignation would go up. Does that mean that it would be flipped or something where a majority would be saying resign? That I can't say for sure. Cuomo has had longstanding support in the polls where you might have a lot of liberal elites complaining about him and people who supported, say, Cynthia Nixon's primary challenge to him in 2018 in the Democratic primary. And he is mostly remained above all that and had a lot of support. So if you're starting from a place of having high approval ratings, high favorability ratings, that could put you in a better position to weather a storm, you might say. If he were starting from a lower position, it might be even easier to call on him to resign and for him to maybe hear those calls and actually do it. Uh, So I think that's also part of the reason why, getting back to Galen's earlier question, why you may see Cuomo fight on is because he believes that 
he's had a lot of support over the years from New Yorkers and that he can maybe harness that to stay in office and survive calls for resignation. But we'll just have to see what the next poll says. Right. And I should add here in terms of the timeline that the latest accusation that the governor had groped an aide in the governor's mansion, that came out on Tuesday of last week. And this poll covers Monday through Friday. So people were asked about this even after that accusation came out. One question here is, do the parties react differently to these kinds of allegations? Last week, we talked about whether or not the Democratic Party was reacting differently today than it had several years ago. A lot of these calls for resignation are coming from within his own party. Plenty of Republicans have, yes, already said that Cuomo should resign. But we are seeing the vast majority of the Democratic delegation in the House and even the majority of Democrats in the state legislature also calling on Cuomo to resign. Would we see this within the Republican Party if Cuomo were a Republican? So polls during the Franken scandal revealed a partisan divide in how voters view these allegations. So what I found interesting was that Democratic voters are more likely to find allegations against Democrats credible and then endorse significant punishments than Republican voters when it comes to allegations against GOP lawmakers and candidates. Last week when I was thinking about this question, I thought that what was unique at the time was that not many Democrats have outright told him to resign. But now, um, of course, that's different. So I don't know if we would have seen the same response were he a Republican lawmaker just based on what polling showed during the Franken era. I think that's right, because this is also an issue. Sexual harassment is something that Democratic voters, in addition to the party itself, care about more than Republican voters. Gallup in 2019 did this huge survey of sexual harassment in the workplace, and they found that 80 percent of Democrats said, yep, huge problem compared to just 39 percent of Republicans. So I think that does already signal that the bar is I guess not higher, lower for the threshold here for Democrat politicians that Cuomo's behavior is not acceptable, want to call it out, want to have it investigated, want to have him resigned or impeached. But that said, Democrats are in this kind of awkward place where they're the party that vocally and stridently says sexual harassment in any form is not okay. And yet they're kind of inconsistent when they define that it's not okay for their own politicians. So there is that dynamic there. But That's a long-winded way, Galen, of answering your question that, yeah, if he had been a Republican politician, I think it would have been closer to what we saw with Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation hearing, where Republicans are saying, it's me too going too far, we need to hear his side, we need to see the results of the investigation, and the signaling would be different. But it seems like the voter, I mean, at least Democratic voters, are somewhat divided here. Like, the voters don't seem to be with the lawmakers, necessarily. I mean, y'all made the point last week that maybe some of this has to do with like we're in the middle of a pandemic and a vaccine rollout. And the last thing I want is to like shake up my governor and like, oh, I'd rather keep him in place, get my vaccine. And Alex had made this point last week that like people aren't necessarily saying he should resign, but they don't want him to run for reelection, which kind of seems to signal like I want to ride this out versus having him resign right away. And maybe voters are also not as convinced about this issue. That said, though, I do think Democrats writ large do care a lot about sexual harassment in the workplace, like time and time again, at least in the polls. It's interesting also here that in the reaction to these 
accusations and calls for Cuomo to resign. He's blamed cancel culture as being responsible, which we generally think of as more of a Republican talking point than a Democratic talking point. What kind of politics is he trying to play into here? And does it turn out that that is also something that resonates with Democratic voters? What is the strategy here? One thing we've talked a lot about is there's less of a moderate GOP voter. There is still a very moderate Democratic voter. Um, The number of Democrats who say they identify, ideologically speaking, as conservative has shrunk, but the very liberal portion has also kind of capped out. There are moderates. And so, I don't know, what do you guys think, Alex, Jeff? Do you think cancel culture appeals to Democrats? I lean toward no. The second I heard Cuomo use the term cancel culture, my first thought was Republicans are going to eat this up. Like they have got to love seeing their talking points validated as a means for a Democratic governor to stay in power. That said, I don't know if that's going to correlate with support among Cuomo's own base. Like Sarah said, there is a large share of moderate Democrats and New York seems to vote more so towards moderate Democrats, especially in gubernatorial races. Um, I'm thinking primarily to Cuomo beating Cynthia Nixon. So I, I don't know if it's a play to get to New York's moderate base. Maybe that was it. But honestly, I'm not sure what his ultimate play is. Yeah, I think if you look at Where Cuomo's support has come from, traditionally, it's been people of color and moderate white voters. And I think his goal here is to maybe hold on to some of those moderate white voters and maybe even some people of color trying to claim that these accusations are false or have been blown out of proportion or something. It's all in the effort to hang on. What happens next here? Democrats in the legislature have started an impeachment inquiry into the allegations Could we see Cuomo be impeached by his own party? I mean, I guess it's entirely possible, you know, between the number of Democrats calling for Cuomo to resign and the fact that there are Republicans uh, in the state legislature, too, who might vote to impeach and remove Cuomo. It is possible that they'd have the numbers. Of course, it's a big distraction if you're trying to govern. It's a big distraction if you're trying to pass legislation to figure figure out policies for other things that you want to spend time on. Clearly, that was a little bit of the calculus when it came to how Democrats dealt with impeachment after Biden became president. Regarding Trump, they didn't necessarily want to spend weeks and months on further investigation and further debate about the issue because they wanted to get to legislating and, and passing things. So part of this calculus, I think, for Democrats in New York State as well. Although I will say that one of the things that affected the Franken case, for instance, having a Democrat next in line might make it easier for them to push out Cuomo uh, with Kathy Hochul there. She's a Democrat. She could become governor. And that would keep things in Democratic hands. So there would be no change in partisan power. And obviously, in the Minnesota case, there was a Democratic governor who could appoint a Democratic senator in Franken's case. So I think that's got to be part of the calculus as well. Yeah. I mean, this is a fast evolving story. And to your point, like the votes are there if they wanted to do it. I do think it's notable that at this point in the assembly, the majority leader has not called for his impeachment or resignation. It's, you know, the investigation should be played out. Part of me can't help but wonder, like, James has been thought of as somebody who would run for governor one day. Is part of it 
let the investigation play out and clear him out for 2022 versus dealing with this head on right now in the middle of a pandemic. And by some key Democrats like People Stokes or Nancy Pelosi not calling for him to resign, does that give the others cover then to come forward and say he should? And then really the Democratic Party is going to deal with it here in 22 and say, no, Cuomo, you're done. You're not running again, despite what you want. Right, because the weird dynamic for ambitious Democrats in New York is that if the lieutenant governor takes over, Kathy Hochul will be running exactly. as an incumbent in 2022, and they wouldn't be facing the wide open field that they may prefer if they're ambitious Democrats in New York. So lots of politics also at play here. I think we'll leave it there. We will see. Maybe everything will have changed one week from now when we gather again. But in the meantime, thank you, Sarah, Alex, and Jeffrey. Thanks, Galen. Thank you. Thank you, Galen. My name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Claire Bidigary Curtis is on audio editing. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or a review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we will see you soon.